through 25 seasons. Hey! 4,561 episodes. I believe the Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. Well, you picked a good day to come to the show because we have two monumental mentors today. When I was growing up, Walter Cronkite, Walter Cronkite was the news. Anybody else grow up in? Well, he was there when dogs were let loose on civil rights protesters. He was there when we buried a beloved president. He was there when a man first walked on the moon. He's been there for just about every news event in our lifetime. Earlier this year, his new book, A Reporter's Life, hit number one on the bestseller list. For years, the pundits called him the most trusted man in America. But we like to call him Uncle Walter. Please welcome Walter Cronkite. <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to do something people always do to me, and I, it, it's, it's irritating, so bear with me. I was in a restaurant in New York about eight years ago, and you were sitting at another table, and a friend and I came up, and we were so, like, blown away that it was you at the table. I ended up writing it in my journal last, that, that night, and we sat up all night talking about what you had meant to our lives. Good Amazing. God. Amazing. That took all night? It took all night. <laughs> <laughs> And then I want to share this story with you. You know how a lot of people have anxiety dreams, actors' dreams? You know, when, like, you're... A lot of people have these dreams where you're naked in the classroom and you missed your uh, biology test. You know, you have those anxiety dreams. My anxiety dream, you are in it. Yes. My anxiety dream is... My anxiety dream is... It's now becoming mine. <laughs> My anxiety dream is, not that I'm on stage, is I'm anchoring the news. I'm co-anchoring the evening news with you. And all of my pages are out of order <laughs> and misnumbered, and the script is upside down, and you are waiting on me to get it straight. And that is my anxiety dream. Whenever I see... We're, we're going to have an awful time co-anchoring. That's, <laughs> that's my anxiety dream. Is that exactly. your anxiety dream? Exactly, yeah. The, the, I know. the no script, the thing that lost, I But you know, it's I because I, I only have it, like, when I'm upset about something that's going to be coming up or I want to, you know, make, make good on something, because mm. you represent um, this symbol of goodness, greatness, integrity, and when you're falling apart in front of you, it's about the worst thing that could happen oh. in a dream or otherwise. So I'm thrilled yeah. to have you here. Can you tell? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful to be here. Can you believe how news has changed since you left the business? No, I'm, I'm sorry for it. I can understand it, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I uh, am a little concerned about it. I'd like to see 
a little more attention given to the breaking news stories of the day on the evening news broadcast mm -hmm. rather than all the feature material that mm -hmm. they're putting on there. I say, as I say, I understand it. I don't blame the news management. I blame the ownership of the networks that are demanding uh, higher and higher ratings all the time in a, in a time and a period when ratings are bound to drop. There's so much uh, else out there. Right, so many people. other ways to secure information. Sure. You know. Now, when you were doing the news, was ratings even a factor, or we were just so thrilled to have the news? Well, Remember, uh, it was 15 ratings, minutes, and then we went to yeah. 30 minutes, and that was like the biggest deal on Earth? Of course, ratings, of course, are important. I mean, circulation is important in newspaper. It's mm -hmm. important in television. You want to get the highest number of viewers you can. But well, there are only three of us. We had this great advantage. Right. No, nothing else out there, just the three of us. And we were sharing a very big <laughs> pie. So what with the, our part of the pie, unless we just fell on our faces, was uh, substantial and, and satisfactory. Well, Walter Cronkite was granted some of the very first television interviews with John F. Kennedy before and after he was elected president. Our interview with the senator will be entirely unrehearsed. It will be spontaneous. It will not be edited. The questions have not been submitted to Mr. Kennedy in advance, and I will be asking them of him for the first time. Of course, Walter Cronkite had the painful task of also telling America the news that no one wanted to hear. Remember, we all remember this. And this is where we heard it from, yeah. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Was that one of the hardest things you've ever had to do? I think probably so. You know, we news people, I've always felt we, we're like other emergency personnel, policemen, firemen, emergency room. We have a job to do when the story breaks, and we do mm -hmm. it. The adrenaline flows a little faster. The emotions catch up with you a little bit later. Uh, and all the morning, that first hour or so, uh, here's the hospital, the job just was almost automatic. You know what mm -hmm. you do, have to do. But knowing you're communicating to the nation the fact that he was dead, finally, irrevocably, it was a, it was a tough moment. I choked up. We could tell you were trying to hold it together. Oh, it was tough. Yeah. That, that, I tell him. And then I'm, seeing Uncle Walter trying to hold it together was what made us all lose it. You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I tell in my book about getting off there after mm -hmm. six hours of that. And, going into my class booth office off the newsroom. And I'd been telling all afternoon about how the telephone circuits were tied up all over America. Right. And I wanted to talk to my wife, you know, a friendly voice. I'd been hearing nothing but official mm -hmm. things all day. I wanted to talk to her, but I went into the, my room and I had two phones, each with six lines coming in. I suddenly realized they were all busy and I was having the same problem everybody else. I couldn't get a line out. Well, one of them came open that moment. I grabbed that line quickly. And as happens with, with automatic phone boards, the line, the calls incoming come through to whatever line is available. And there was some woman on the lawn. She was saying, hello, 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 in this terribly kind of phony Boston Park mm -hmm. Avenue accent. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I'm, I said, hello. She said, I'd like to speak to someone at CBS. And I said, this is CBS. And the news department, please. I said, this is the news department, madam. And she said, well, I want to complain about your having that Walter Cronkite on the <laughs> air at this time, crying his crocodile tears when we all know he hated John Kennedy. Wow. That's the first voice I'm hearing after six hours. Of 
I said, Madam, what is your name? And she gave me one of those hyphenated names, you know. I am Mrs. John Parkinson Johnson. <laughs> and, and then she gave me her Park Avenue address just mm -hmm. to make sure I understood her yeah. class in society. And I said, Mrs. Parker Johnson, you're speaking to Walter Cronkite. And you, madam, are a damned idiot. Newsman <laughs> <laughs> Walter Cronkite, who's written a new book called A Reporter's Life. It's a beautiful book that chronicles his life as a newsman. You speak in the book A Reporter's Life about your first encounter with racism. Oh, my gosh. It's, uh, it was traumatic and lasted with me ever since. Uh, we moved to Houston, Texas from Kansas City when I was 10 years old. And uh, there, I'm sure, it's a, you know, a, a black problem, if you call it a problem. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there must have been, obviously, but it did, didn't, there weren't that many African-Americans there. And it was, I wasn't aware of it at all. I think I knew one very nice African-American who worked for my grandfather's drugstore. This is when you were in Kansas, before mm -hmm. you moved to Houston. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, in, in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Got to Houston, and the very second night we were there, my father, who was a dentist, uh, his sponsor had brought him down there to be in the office with him uh, and to teach at the dental college there. Uh, had us to dinner out at a very fancy residential area of Houston. River and, Oaks. Hmm? River Oaks. In River Oaks, mm -hmm. yeah. And there, uh, uh, at that time, they didn't have air conditioning, didn't have freezers, can't believe it or not. You called up the drugstore, and you got ice cream delivered after mm -hmm. dinner. Mm -hmm. And uh, the delivery boys were all black, uh, were motorcycle delivery boys. And we were sitting on the front porch having a nice talk with Dr. Smith, I'll call him. I wouldn't want to embarrass any heirs he had. And it surely should embarrass him if it wouldn't. Then, at any rate, the boy came on the, on the motorcycle, and he was a boy, not a, not a man maybe 17, 16, mm -hmm. 17. And he obviously was looking for a way to get to the back door. Had a flashlight, and he was looking around. And there was a new subdivision that didn't have the kind of normal driveways you'd have. It had a kind of a strange entrance to an alleyway. He couldn't find it. And finally, he started walking up this long front walk to the front porch. And Dr. Smith was sitting there in a rocker, I'll remember. And as the boy started up the walkway, with every step, boy took, Smith would move forward just a little, another inch or two in the seat. And you could feel tension building, but I had no idea why. And he, the boy came, and as he put his foot on the step, one of the four steps coming up to the porch, Smith came out of his seat like a Polaris missile with his hand already cocked in a fist, and he hit him right in the middle of the face, middle of the face, knocked him back onto the, onto the grass, the ice cream flying out of his hand, of course, in his sack. And he said, excuse the horrible word, but he said, that'll teach you, nigger, never put your foot on a white man's front porch. Well, that did it. That did it. I, I was just watching this amazing scene, the full import of it didn't strike me at the moment, but horrible to see anybody hit. I don't think I'd ever seen anybody hit before like that. My father, though, got up and said, Walter, Helen, we're leaving, and started down the front steps. And Dr. Smith said, wait a minute, what's the matter? What's the matter? He didn't know what was the matter even. My father said, we're leaving. And he said, I'll get my car, I'll get my car. My father didn't answer him, wouldn't answer. We walked out into the dark of a strange city, strange neighborhood, away from the 
downtown section where we were staying in the hotel and walk down that street, my father seething and my mother saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, you know, out in this dark area? We waited for, past a couple of houses, hoping there'd be a light there where we could call a car or something. Didn't find one, went to Shepherd Drive and hitched a ride, finally getting down to town. And it was only in retrospect that I realized I was never prouder of my father than that moment. But it gave me a whole new... Great story. Former CBS anchorman, the legend, Walter Cronkite. Of course, as we go through life, you know, uh, there will be extraordinary events that will continue to occur. But no better time in the world to have been a reporter and to have been the reporter that you were. No, I I think these 50 years, the last half of this century, uh, and before that, of course, including Mm -hmm. World War II, obviously, uh, uh, got to be the most concentrated period of of, uh, of fascinating history, interesting things, tumbling one upon the other, social revolution, like the civil rights battle, wars, for heaven's sakes, the incredible scientific and technical progress we've made, the medical progress we've made, uh, it, nothing, nothing, nothing like. And of course, that dominant event of the 20th century, the fact we left our environment on Earth and landed on a distant orb out there, the landing on the moon. Was that the most exciting to you? Oh, I think so. Yeah, it had to be. Of course, when you talk to somebody who covered World War II, that was fairly exciting. Yeah. But, but as far as a, a major news event of that nature, yeah, sure. Sure, man, land. You know, and I had just as long to prepare for that event as NASA did, for heaven's sake. Mm-hmm. And when it happened, I was speechless. I couldn't, couldn't say a word. Oh, boy, you know. <laughs> you know. Wow. Oh, boy. Wally Sherrod kept testing me all afternoon. He said, what are you going to say when they really land? What are you going to say? I said, I've, I've got a lot of things in mind. I'm, you know, I, I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> and, and he still kids me. He said, what do you say? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Well, it's been said that America's opinion of our role in Vietnam shifted after television brought us the ugly reality of the war right into our living rooms night after night. Walter Cronkite made several trips there over the years. Were you afraid? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're afraid. I mean, you're, you're afraid, but you can do, do your job. You know, that's where you got to be. And you, uh, you're a lot better off than those guys who have to be there. Right. At least. Uh, it's, it's the one thing that, they, that the GIs used to say about us where we were. We were volunteers. They said, uh, we really admire you guys. You don't have to be here. Right. Well, it has certainly been one of the great honors of my life to talk to you, and I had no anxiety about it. <laughs> Not one bit. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. They have called my next guest the most powerful woman in America, in part because she helped forced the resignation of a sitting president. She was also the first woman to head a Fortune 500 company when she commanded Newsweek magazine, The Washington Post, and television stations across the nation. Her rise to the top was spurred in part by the tragic suicide of her husband, whose death thrust her into his old boys network. Her candid biography called Personal History hit number one on the bestseller list. Please welcome Katherine Graham to the show. I said earlier, it's a monumental mentor day. Her book is called Personal History, and I have friends who have never read over 300 pages in their life of one book uh, who are enthralled with these pages because I told, encouraged them to read it because I said, 
it's really every woman's story. It's about finding yourself, discovering what your strengths and your weaknesses are, uh, having courage when you didn't think that you had it, developing a sense of strength when you didn't know you had it, and the will to keep going. And it's surprising that this is your story, having been, you know, raised the way you were, because so many people, you know, assume that because you were born to wealth, then that means you automatically have everything going for you, especially self-esteem. But you've proven that that's not true. No, of course it isn't. You can be born any way you want, mm -hmm. economically, financially. It depends how you grow up and how you develop and how your self-esteem does or doesn't come. Right. I was born into a family that was absolutely marvelous. I mean, they were intellectually in inspiring. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were fun. My father was my mentor. And my mother was absolutely um, gifted, intellectual, interested in modern art and Chinese art before anybody else was. Mm -hmm. But she, um, she just condescended to everybody and maybe especially your children. Mm -hmm. And she had enormous expectations of you. And yet she undermined your ability to fulfill them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what sort of weighed on me because I didn't think I could fulfill any expectations. I know. But um, as when I had to develop strength when my husband was ill uh, to try to support him and get him through this, he, was, was he suffered depressive. from manic depression. Mm -hmm. And there were things I wanted to talk about in the book, and manic depression was one of them. I really wanted to lay out what happened and sort of try to... But the thing that you said about women and the book about women has pleased me, I guess, more than anything and surprised me because I wasn't surprised that it appealed to women my age. Mm -hmm. But I really was surprised when I've gotten these letters from younger women right. saying, uh, we're so pleased that somebody who's made it to the top tells what it's like and the, the baggage we carry is, encumbers us with because that's what we're still going through and it helps us to know that it can be overcome. Let's start a bit though, talk, talking about your upbringing. One of the things you were never allowed to, the three things you say that you weren't allowed to discuss, money, al although you are very wealthy, um, the fact that your father was Jewish or sex. So you were raised in that era where no, nobody mentioned it, it was not even discussed. I'm not sure it was the era, Oprah. I think it was my family. Mm -hmm. They were very busy. We didn't see. But them. everybody else is saying that was my family too. So, <laughs> must have been the era. <laughs> well, uh, somewhat, I'm yeah. sure it was the era. But uh, it was very hard for anybody to discuss those very. And you were raised with nannies and and governesses and governesses. And also, both my f parents. One came from this Jewish background, as you said, and the other one came from an equally sort of serious Lutheran background. Mm -hmm. And both of them had ministers and rabbis in their background, but they were not religious. And so it never was brought up. And I insanely didn't know even what being Jewish was, much less that I was. Well, what's one of the stories that touched me the most was when you talk about self-esteem and children developing a sense of identity, uh, was the story you tell, I think it was your sister, someone called the house and it was your sister who answered the phone. And normally, you know, someone else always answered the phone, the butler yes. or the governess or someone. And the person on the other end of the phone said, who, who is, is this? this? Yes. And she didn't know how to answer it. And she said, finally, this is the little girl that Mademoiselle takes care of. Mm. 
because that's who she thought she was. Yeah. Isn't that telling? That was a sad story, yes. Yeah, yes. Probably. Well, let's move on to talk about what happened. First of all, dealing with a manic depressive, your yes. husband, and then what happened after his uh, suicide. When your husband, uh, Philip, died, did you feel that, you know, there was no way for you to go on and take over this company? When he died, I owned the controlling shares of the company, which had been family shares and mm -hmm. still are. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the company is public now. Uh, and therefore, I felt responsibility. And I w was t invited to go to work. I want, uh, the chairman of the company and some editors at the Post said, you've got to come to work. And I went to work. And I've been asked, how did you have the courage to go there and take over? But I didn't. I went to work to learn what the issues were in case someday I should have to make an important decision because I had these control, the control. And wasn't so difficult at first because your husband was so charismatic and so, yes. you know, respected and admired that, you know, men were coming in crying on your shoulder. Yes. I was devastated myself, and I was trying to learn the business, and I was creeping along practically on my hands and knees, trying to do what was needed. And they would come in and say, oh, your husband was so wonderful. We miss him so much. And you know, it wasn't, you thought, it made you feel guiltier. Mm -hmm. I think this picture defines who you stand for and what you've meant more than, than anything. There's Kay and all white men in a boardroom. I mean, just. Well, um, that was the Associated Press Board of Directors, and that was kind of a great for me to be on it because you had to get elected to it. And um, so I was kind of pleased to be on that. But I had to go into one room after another like that, and I never got over being scared of it. And they, what I later understood was that they were scared of me. And, uh, you know, nobody knew kind of how to handle it. And once we became friends and got over mm -hmm. that awful hurdle, it was fine. The worst board I ever went on was one on Wall Street. It was a company that was asked me to go on the board. And I had wanted one, but I had not been able to go on one mm -hmm. because they were all conflicts of interest, I thought, mm -hmm. automobiles or food or, you know, all that. And so I went on this board, which was largely oil and manufacturing. And there was a, we had a report from this financial officer. and. I was only about my third meeting, and he had a pointer. And he said, now these girls are doing this. And they were obviously older women with beehives and white mm -hmm. hair. And I sat through that. And then the second time, he said, these girls are doing something else. And I heard a voice from on high. It wasn't me, I think, but it was. <laughs> and I said, women. And uh, he didn't hear me. And so the third time, when he did it again, I said, well, if you call us girls, why aren't those other guys boys? Mm -hmm. And he's, I mean, after that, I, instead of, I nearly died of embarrassment. I sort of slid under the table. But when I got to know them later, they said it had made a great impression on them and they had learned that you didn't call you and me girls. girls. So when you started to write this personal history of yourself and your life, did it just, did it flow as easily as it seems to in the book? No, not no. at all. 
Uh, first of all, I had no diaries, so we had to do a couple of years of research. Uh -huh. And I did 250 interviews with people to whom I related. And luckily, I lived in a world in which we wrote letters to each other. Oh, yeah. So I had an awful lot of those. And then I started on my family's families. And people told me not to do that, to try to pull people in with an event. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't find, I, so I started at the very beginning and worked up. You and, saved all your letters. Did yes. you save all of them? Yes, somebody Letters from me. presidents, letters from Jackie Onassis. Yes. Letters from, the letter your daughter, your 20-year-old daughter, when you had to go oh. and speak to the board and she jumped in the car in her pajamas. I don't know, somebody saved those notes that she gave me. Amazing. Some, as somebody asked me if I'd ever thrown a letter away. Have you? No. No. <laughs> Were you afraid for yourself personally? Because after the Pentagon Papers, the, the folks in the White House were not too happy with you. No. And then Watergate came along, and they certainly were not happy with you or the paper, and, and made that known. They did. They threatened us in every way, both serious ones and non-serious ones. The verbal ones were mostly fairly non-serious. Mm -hmm. But they questioned our credibility, mm -hmm. and they said we were reporting innuendo and guilt by association and things that weren't true. And um, they, the, but the, and they said nobody, they shouldn't be, have, we shouldn't have our phones answered, I mean the post. Uh, and then um, they said people shouldn't come to my house to dinner. Well, that wasn't going to keep me awake nights. <laughs> uh, and in fact, some of the nicer people and the people I knew did come anyway. But um, the serious thing they did to us was we had two television stations whose licenses were up for renewal in Florida. Mm -hmm. and people, WPLG? Yes. One of them, yeah. Uh, Named after your husband, yeah. Pete Philip L. Graham, yes. WPLG. And WJXT in Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. And um, they um, were up for renewal, and they got challenged by people who were sympathetic to the administration or part of it, or in the committee to reelect. And they had these very serious challenges to the our responsibility because to, the to White House can make life difficult well, the for FCC you. can yeah. and mm -hmm. they made trouble with the FCC and so these license challenges went on two years and our stock dropped by a half so the company was worth half what it had been in the beginning oh. so that was the serious challenge when Truman Capote had the famous black and white ball for you what year was that 66 66 that was one of the at the time one of the most extraordinary events was it not? It was. I mean, how could it not be? Uh, he called me up one day and said, Honey, I'm going to give a party for you to cheer you up. And I said, Truman, I don't need cheering up. And uh, he said, Well, I've always wanted to give a ball. And I love the black and white scene in My Fair Lady, the racing scene. And it's so beautiful. And everybody has to be dressed in black and white. And I've always loved the Plaza Ballroom. And it's going to be in the Plaza Ballroom. And everybody will come with masks, and they'll take their masks off at midnight. I mean, it was this romantic sort of vision of something. So then um, it actually happened that everybody went crazy about who was coming, who was not, how they were going to dress. And uh, it got to be this enormous, wild event. Of course, Truman was thrilled. I, in fact, was kind of a prop. I mean, <laughs> I was a so-called guest of honor. But I mean, I think I was a harmless one. 
I wasn't one of his glorious sort of worldly friends mm -hmm. like Gloria Guinness or Babe Paley, you know, and they'd have been competitive with each other. I was this woman who had gone to work three years earlier and no nobody knew me. And I didn't know that world. And so I think he, this was part of his vision. Of what he wanted to yes. create. Yes. yes. And I really did feel like old Cinderella. <laughs> Well, I was telling you earlier that the book is great because although we come from different backgrounds, what I, I identified with and I what, think what so many other people will identify with is the courage and the will to continue to survive in the face of, of responsibility, in the face of responsibility, being able to step up to the plate and understanding that all of us, no matter who we are, have insecurities, but you have the will within yourself to conquer. That's what this book, Personal History, is about to me. Thank you. You have to put one foot in front of the other, but you're lucky if you have good mentors and good advisors. And if things, you also have to have luck. I, have to, I hate to say it because a lot of women are accused of saying, oh, it's all luck. Mm -hmm. But you really have to have it, and I had it. You did. Yes. Thank you, Catherine Graham. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. And I thank you for listening.